Marcus, if I was to write a book about your life, what would the front cover say? Comedy of errors. Why'd uh, you pick that? <laughs> uh, well, I've blundered from one catastrophic failure to another. Um, and because I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth and I'm one of the luckiest people alive, um, I've done no lasting harm. Uh, well, not to myself anyway. Um, and I've found failure is my best teacher. Um, it's eventually taught me some humility. Um, and I think without those failures and without those mistakes along the way, I don't think I could do what I do. Um, and as a result of having made those blunders, um, I think I'm you know, pretty reasonable at what I do. Uh, doesn't mean that there's not room for growth. Um, but I, I've just learned so much from my mistakes. Well, I'd like to talk to you about those failures, blunders, and lessons learned and insights gained. Before I do that, though, maybe you could just give our listeners a little bit of context, a little bit of background. And if the first chapter of that book were on the first 20 years of your life, what would I learn about you? Um, okay, I uh, wasn't expecting that. Um, Army brat, um, born in Malta, travelled around uh, following my dad um, for the first uh, few years, shunted off to boarding school. We'd moved uh, 11 times by the time I was nine, um, so never really settled anywhere. Uh, misfit at school, raised by the Christian brothers for my sins, um, and uh, managed to survive that. Uh, then by the Josephites, who were another Catholic order you know, with all sorts of issues. Blundered my way through school, being just fractionally above average, um, with enormous amount of ego and aspirations to greatness, and then discovered I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was in terms of role function. So how did you, and I want to talk to you, I want to really talk talk to you about that role function in a moment but how do you think that moving a lot and having to you know make new friends everywhere you went on a regular basis um adapt to new settings new surroundings how do you think that's informed the person you are today i found it hard to be honest i was quite a shy kid and um, i realized knowing me now you're probably not convinced of that um but i, I was a very shy kid bit of a mummy's boy um, and moving around was tough. Um, as a very young child, I adapted, but then I got shunted off to boarding school. And that was 10, well, about eight years of hell because uh, I was scared all the time. I felt like a misfit. Um, you know, growing up in England with a uh, you know, funny foreign name um, and you know, slightly olivey skin uh, in the 1970s and early 80s wasn't necessarily um, you know, an introduction to... Uh, cosmopolitan society. Um, so I, I always felt like a bit of an outsider. Uh, so I tended to gravitate to all the foreign students. Actually, that, that was good because nowadays I do, you know, a, a lot of my clients are quite multicultural. Uh, so I've had up to 45 different nationalities in a room and I feel very comfortable with that. Um, and I, do, you know, I don't have to shout to make myself understood uh, like the average Englishman does. So how did you make the transition then from that to a fee-earning fee sales rep? Talk to me about your kind of first sales experience. Okay, well, I, I did a degree in squiggles and spaghetti hoops. So I did a degree in Middle Eastern studies, um, four years of avoiding work, thinking I was going to um, uh, end up making my fortune in the Middle East. Um, went over there for a summer and realized that it was way too hot and I couldn't be bothered. Uh, with uh, learning the language and realized I'd made a fundamental error in my degree choice. And while I was at university in my second year, I got a sales job um, going to these network marketing meetings, selling taps and fittings and things. And I took a bit of a, a shine to selling. And I remember upselling someone from a 50p piece of tube uh, to 170 pounds worth of kit. And so that's kind of fun and got a bit of a taste for it there. And then when I came out of university, I had a job working with the precursor to talking pages. And within three weeks, they made me sales manager, uh, which was a monumentally bad decision as far as uh, recruitment was concerned. 
but I managed to hit the three-month targets in a month um, entirely by accident. There was no rhyme or reason. It was just through uh, hard work and recruiting lots of people. Um, and then that died because the MD had a nervous breakdown. Uh, we found him, or the police found him four weeks later in Northumberland uh, in the same clothes that he left his wife and three kids in. Then I became the Australian Consul's Executive Assistant. And if anyone knows how bad I am at administration, you can understand why it took them two years to fix the filing after I left. But then I got into sales and I've been in sales in one form or another ever since. So I did recruitment, software, consultancy, telemarketing, and lastly, I moved into uh, training. So when you look at all the industries you've worked in and worked with, the different sales models, the different personality types, what would you say are the, 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 where's the common thread that runs through them that says, this is what sales is about? From recruitment, which maybe recruitment people mightn't even call that sales, through to medical devices, software, et cetera. What, what are the common things you see uh, that, that this says, this is sales? Right, okay. Um, the best experience I've had has been since I joined Sandler. Uh, because the experience I had before, I don't think was, uh, that, that was scar tissue. And it was useful to learn how not to do stuff. I worked across roughly 450 segments of the market. Uh, so everything from uh, defense sales at three billion pounds a piece, uh, through to naked platters, uh, legal services, female fantasy fulfillment coaching. Can you believe I've been in female fantasy fulfillment? I, I can believe it. Uh, I don't know how well you did at it, but I could believe it. Oddly enough, they made lots of sales. Matchmaking. That was really interesting. Matching really bright, highly qualified Japanese women uh, with uh, fat, dumb, happy and rich, uh, wealthy men in the city uh, who had no personality and no time to find a woman. Yeah, I mean, everything in between. Hardware, software, office furnishings, uh, print, you name it. And the one theme that comes through is... Great salespeople give a damn. They actually care about the conversation they're having with their prospect. They're there to help. Um, and they pay attention. They're fully present. They ask fantastic questions. And those questions gather insight, not just information. And they're not there to make friends. They're there to go to the bank. Well, okay you've raised two questions in my head and I'm trying to make sense of them because at first glance, they seem incompatible. You said that great salespeople give a damn and then it's all about going to the bank. And my question was, until you said that, my question was going to be, can you be really effective as a salesperson if all you give a damn about is going to the bank? The answer to that question, I don't think is, uh, is no. Um, I think you have to care in that you're there to help. If you can't help, you're out quickly. Um, and if you can help, then you have an obligation to sell to them. What's the biggest obstacle, do you think, to that? Because Ego. it's not something you see all too Ego. often. Ego. Ego is the enemy. Do you the not moment... see... I'm just curious on this. And we'll, we'll, we'll dive into the ego in a moment because uh, I, I do agree with you on that. I'm just wondering, though, what role managerial pressure and organizational culture has on the mindset of the rep who you know, may care outside of work, maybe a very caring individual and want to do right by his or her customer, but the ethos culture of the organization is... Just get the deal over the line. Uh, great question. Um, I mean, my, my view on that is that if you're in the wrong culture, get out. Um, I know it sounds terribly glib, particularly you know, if you're a 47-year-old or 50-year-old sales rep um, trying to you know, keep a roof over your head. Um, but the reality is that you have a choice um, and you can get better. Um, if you are exceeding your target consistently and predict predictably, um, I suspect most of your managers will just leave you alone. Um, so the real answer is fill your funnel up with qualified prospects so you have enough so you don't need this sale. 
you've got enough in the pipeline, so you're going to hit your number anyway. The problem with most they're focusing on trying to make the sale rather than where they should be focused on, which is filling the funnel up consistently um, with three to five times more prospects than they need to hit their target. Managers focus on things like dials, number of meetings, number of proposals, revenue, all of which are lag indicators. The really important stuff is uh, the lead, are the leading indicators. So the number of unique effective conversations you have every day with genuine prospects or in your target market, have a problem you can fix, and, and you set a contract with them saying, Paul, let me tell you in 30 seconds why I'm calling, and then you can either hang up or you can invite me in. And uh, then qualifying them as a prospect. So they're in your target market, have a pain you can fix. They are a decision maker, is able and willing to make a decision, able and willing to invest the time, the money, the resources necessary to make their problem go away, and they're working towards a clearly defined timetable. If you what do I'm that... Hearing... Sorry, I was just Sorry? going to say, what, what, what I'm hearing you tell me is that mindset really matters in terms of the story you're telling yourself, but also what's just flowing from you is uh, uh, you know what to say. And I, and I think, I guess I'm asking, are they two very different problems that people have? One is the mindset is I'm financially independent, uh, I care, but then also in every, any given context, I know how to bring about that change in other people. I, I know how to contract. I know how to ask questions. Hmm. Um, I, I think we have an obligation to sell ethically. Um, and that means win-win or no deal. And, and if you live and work by that rule, that uh, it's a win-win, it's good for you, it's good for me, or it's no deal at all and I will walk away, um, then it's much easier to set those boundaries and be clear about what the parameters are. Um, if you're ambiguous um, because you haven't got enough in the pipeline, and what's really important to getting that mindset is developing the right habits. If you haven't got a prospecting habit and you only prospect when the funnel is empty, and then you stop prospecting when it's full, um, then you'll always be in feast and famine. And so you'll always have to take the next deal rather than saying, you know, I can play the long game here. And as a result of people behaving like you know, they shouldn't, uh, then sales has developed the name that it currently deserves, which is that you can't trust salespeople. Well, on that, because what you said was, a, and it's a bit of a paradox, which is the win-win or no deal is that when, when it's win-lose, nine times out of 10, it's the salesperson who loses. Mm. They give away their dignity, they give away their integrity. But they can they say no. They the bank. They can say no. They can say, no, thank you, Mr. Prospect. Really appreciate you offering me this, but that doesn't work for me. And my favorite line, I think it may have even come from you, is develop a, a backbone instead of a wishbone. Oh no, that's not mine. I wish I came up with that. Okay, well, we, I'll give you the credit and you can steal it for one. Thank you, because the one I, I saw that you had on your website was it's easy to be flexible when you don't have a spine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that one because it is so true. <laughs> now, that's it, and, and maybe it's a little bit pejorative and unfair. Uh, it's not. I, I, I don't think it is. I think we've got to be tough, and we've got to be tough on ourselves. There are no bad prospects. Yeah. There are only bad salespeople. And it's always our fault. And if they object, it's because we took them. I was just giving you the opportunity to show your nurturing side, Mark. That, 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 oh. that was my nurturing side. Thanks, I Paul. forgot. I forgot that. <laughs> okay. We, so, we owe it to ourselves. We I agree. To them. I agree. I agree. I think your own, your own integrity, your own dignity comes first. I just think people are afraid sometimes. Uh, again, Paul, sorry to cut across you, but this comes back down to the fundamental rule, which is you will only perform to the level your self-concept will yep. allow. When yep. you can look yourself eye to eye in the mirror when you're shaving, yeah, and you like the person who looks back because it's someone that you would actually want to do business with, uh, someone you can trust and will always tell you the truth no matter what, even if it pains them to do so, that's a bloody great place to be. So let's look at the flip side of that because I was reading an article recently 
it was a comment online about the whole notion of trusted advisor. And this guy made a comment that was, look, when you work for somebody else, you have an agenda. I can never trust what you're telling me because you have an agenda. And, and his point was that only independent operatives, consultants can be truly independent or at least can be perceived to be. But when you're working for the man, forget it. You're known by the promises you keep, not the ones you make. If you keep promises and you fight the corner uh, of the prospect, if you've given your word without rescuing, and that's absolutely key and something we're going to cover in a minute. Um, you know, if, if you, you only make promises you intend to keep, yeah? And you're known by the promises you keep, not the ones that you make. So yeah, you can absolutely be trusted and become a trusted advisor, um, but you have to have the integrity uh, to say, Paul, I'm going to be upfront with you. I don't think I can get that over the line for you. I don't believe that I'm going to be able to sell that internally. Now, tell me something. If I can go back to then with something of equal or greater value, what can you give me that will make it compelling enough for them to say yes to me now? Yeah. yeah so, so you're now like an honest broker. Yeah. I, well, I think it's always give and take. And there are different agendas. Um, but I absolutely believe that you have the right as a human being to say yes or no. Fine. You might get fired for it. Um, but that's part of the price of having some integrity. Sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. That's what courage is. It's doing what you are afraid to do, what pains you to do. Um, but you do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. And there are too few people out there who give enough of a damn to do the right thing. And in sales in particular. I love that answer. I love that answer. I love that. Be known for the promises you keep, not the ones you make. I think that yeah. sums it up nicely. Uh, we, we were talking about winning and losing, Marcus, so it's probably apt that we now talk about the winner's triangle, which is what I really wanted to talk to you about today. Winner's triangle, what's that all about? Okay, uh, in order to explain it, I need to explain the drama triangle very quickly. Um, the drama triangle describes every screwed up, dysfunctional, dissatisfying relationship you can or will ever have. And it's on its sharp point, and uh, the bottom of that is the victim position. Then you have the persecutor and the rescuer. The victim says, why me? Life's so unfair. This always happens. Save me. Yeah. Um, the persecutor comes with a jabby index finger, the pronoun you, and stabs you in the face or the chest and says, you piece of you always, you never. You're such a disappointment. You've ruined the whole day. Yeah. Um, and then the rescuer helps without boundaries or permission. Um, it's mollycoddling, it's permissive, it's micromanaging. Uh, they create a bottleneck because no one will do anything because they know their work's going to be overturned. Persecutors and rescuers create a culture uh, or where no one is trusted to do their job. Uh, one is bullied and so no one ever takes any risk because if they do, they get beaten uh, and they're going to lose their job or they're going to get shouted at. Uh, in the persecutor and with the rescuer, um, then they don't bother because they know that all of their work's going to be double, triple, quadruple checked, and it's good, you know someone else will probably end up um, uh, doing the work for them. So they just create learned helplessness and a bottleneck. Um, now the winners triangle. Um, Bruce Lee was asked, "What's the best way to avoid a punch?" And he said, "Be somewhere else." I love it. And uh, somewhere else is the winners triangle. So instead of being a victim you're vulnerable. Now, vulnerable comes from the Latin vulnerabilis, which means to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. It was an act of courage. So a Roman legionary would go into battle having ripped off his armor and he'd go in unarmored as a sign of courage. Bit stupid, but fair enough. Okay, um, instead of being aggressive and persecuting, jabby finger, okay, you're assertive. You draw a line and you say, Paul, this is the line, you may not cross it. I am disappointed in your behavior. That is unacceptable. Not, and all of that, okay? And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing and empathic. So a drama triangle, uh, someone being late. Oh, Paul, it's, it's not my fault. Um, look, I'm, I'm doing my best. The bloody sat took me everywhere, and I, I've been trying my best, but road works. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. Women's that's, trafficking. That's, that's the victim, right? That's, that's the victim, persecutor, and rescuer because they swap positions. Gotcha. Yeah. So not my fault. It was Trying my best as rescue, rescuer. Bloody Satnav is persecutor. Got it. Okay. So it creates blame, excuses, avoidance behaviors, all of that kind of stuff. Um, now, Winner's Triangle version is, Paul, I am so sorry. It's entirely my fault. That's vulnerable, but. That's the vulnerable. Right. Okay. I misjudged the traffic and I left too late. Now moving into nurturing. You must be upset with me. And I completely understand. Would you like me, assertive, to turn around and just come home and we can chalk this up to experience and I hope you can forgive me. So talk to me then because this, what this sounds to me like is when, when, when people talk about the psychological games being played in that drama triangle between the persecutor, the victim and the rescuer. And then I heard this phrase once, which is stay out of the game. Yeah. Is that what we're talking about with the winner's triangle? Staying the winner's out of triangle the is destructive game. Psychological game players. Got it. Right. So There's that's, how, that that's essentially how you do it. That's how you stay out of the game. Yeah, absolutely. But what's really important to understand is the drama triangle is all about ego and attachment. Okay. Ego thrives on drama. Anytime you take a victim, persecutor, or rescuer position, that's your ego being hooked. And remember, ego is the enemy. Now, tell me this. If you had eight prospects in your uh, sales funnel for every deal you needed to get over the line, if someone said no to you, would you care? No, not at all. If someone wanted you to discount, would you be comfortable planting your feet and saying no? No, no trouble whatsoever. Okay, if someone wanted you to over-service them or um, was moving the goalposts, would you have any difficulty saying um, thanks but no thanks? No, I don't think so. I, I, I feel if they were genuinely, if they were taking the mickey, I think yeah. you'd have to say it to them. Right. Okay. But if, if you only have three prospects in the pipeline and you need five to hit your target, and if you don't, you're going to get fired, what happens? I have enough problems. The last thing I want to do is lose another one. Absolutely. So your ego gets hooked and you go from victim into rescuing by helping them yeah, and then you try and get even later and you move into persecutor. Yeah. How much of that does is just pure emotion where I lose the run of myself because I'm afraid. It, it's hooked my, that, that little child that says, please don't, please don't screw this one up. You know, to, speaking to Paul, yourself. Paul, you have to understand we are emotional beings. Um, our decision-making part of the brain is the mammalian brain, which funnily enough is exactly where emotions reside as well. All emotions, all decisions are emotional 100% of the time. If you like to get uh, three quotes and line everything up on a spreadsheet and compare, you have an emotional attachment to that. All decisions are emotional all of the time. There's no escaping it. You can't, you cannot um, override your hardwiring. So where, you where does logic and that whole sense of Decisions being intellectual come into play. Right. Logic and reason comes in um, what, in terms of how you justify your decision. Right. So okay. it's, a, it's a post-decision function. It may happen very quickly afterwards. I remember buying myself a £73,000 um, uh, convertible. I remember. On the, on the basis that it had a button. When you press the button... The engine, the five liter engine went, and I really liked that. And so I bought this car. Then I spent my time trying to work out how the hell am I gonna tell my wife, first of all, um, and secondly, um, well, you know, when my clients see me turn up in this, they'll know I'm successful, which was all well and good, but I worked in central London. In three years of owning this money pit, driving at 11 miles an hour with a five liter car, and 275 pounds a week in fuel, yeah? How often do you think customers saw my car? Not, too, not, all, not all that often, I would imagine. Where do you park in London? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Underground car parks. Okay. And then you walk or take a taxi. I'm not brave enough for that. 
Okay, so in three years, one of my clients saw my car because I gave them a lift. But my logic and reason justifying it was that they'd know I'd arrived. Well, that actually, that, that brings up another question and maybe it's a slight tangent because I had this recently and I was talking to uh, my son about this camera I had just purchased. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> why, why do I get the feeling I know where this is headed? I, sh I should have said another camera I, I had just purchased. And, I, and, and he said, why did you buy that one? And, and I gave him my, my reasoning and he looked at me, he's, now I, won't, I can't say this because this is going, it has been broadcast. This was not a broadcast quality response. It's because you, something wanted it, was his response. Well, he, well his, it, first, it was first an expletive that started with B and ended with KS, with yeah. two L's in the middle. <laughs> and he says, why don't you tell me the real reason? Uh, and of course he was absolutely right. Uh, and and, and the real reason actually went to Eagle. Because this made this particular camera made me feel good. Now, by the way, that that's 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 Nerdville. So I'm not even going to go there as to why that particular one, why I was drawn to it. However, it was certainly nothing to do with the reasons why I paid for it. And if I had to justify that money to anybody else, there was no way I was ever going to buy that camera if I had to tell my wife beforehand. Now, the only thing is, you never <laughs> listen to these podcasts, so that's fine. <laughs> so, so, so it raises two questions. One is, how much time do you think people really spend investigating prospects' real rationale for doing business rather than listening to their surface-level justifications? That's one. And two, having, having to explain our bogus rationale internally to somebody else to get sign-off may not be as effective as it is when we just have to convince ourselves. Okay, I'll give you a couple of great stories. Um, so people justify for any number of reasons. I mean, I've had clients who have bought uh, my training because uh, they ran out of wall space for their modern art collection. So they wanted to buy the house next door or the flat next door to knock a wall through uh, so they could extend their modern art collection. Uh, there are two sets of twins out there because their, uh, their mothers wanted to do IVF and they couldn't afford it, so they paid me uh, to get the money together. Um, I have somebody who has a horse called Jacob uh, who is still jumping fences uh, because he came to me because he couldn't afford the 80 grand vets bill uh, to um, fix Jacob's lame leg. Now, my favorite one of these uh, was a, a lady a client of mine who ran an IT uh, consultancy She'd been going for about six years, phoenixed the company because she fired two of her co-directors and started again with another one. And she phoned a German bank uh, three months into her trading history. Now, we know German banks are mildly retentive when it comes to compliance. Um, anyway, so she cold called her way in, identified some pain with a particular project, and uh, a, a competitor uh, a large, big uh, systems integrator, been working on it for about three years and was screwing it up royally. Um, and the company was going to be, uh, the bank was going to be fined about 250 million pounds if they missed the deadline for completion. So uh, Kerry went in, did the whole pain discovery piece that I taught her, um, and got the prospect to write the proposal there and then, uh, email it to her, and said, dear Kerry, I need this, 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 and this. Uh, regards... Uh, John, and 25 minutes later, she got back to the office, topped and tailed the email, and said, Dear John, as I understand it, what you're looking for is, and just cut and paste the bits that he wrote to her, uh, regards Kerry. And she had £125,000 wired to her account that night. The, uh, the project cost 600000 for her to do the turnaround. Um, she did over £3 million with them, and had a stab at the reason why he really bought. You know what? I, we, I, I'm going to guess that we're going to be here for hours if I was to continue to stab because... Give me one. Okay, give you one. Why did he buy? Because her competitor was screwing it up royally. No. And school fees. He had two sons in private school at £9,000 per son per term, which is £27,000 per child. So that's fifty four grand after tax. That's 108000 before tax. If he messed this up, he would never work in the square mile again. 
So what you're saying is really everybody has a reason and they've got nothing well, to tell you. There's industry and market reasoning. Then there's group and division. Then there's individual company. Yeah. Then there's team or region, then team. Then there's career. And then there's personal. And our job is to get to the personal stuff. And if you're playing the winner's triangle, then it makes it easy because you're spending time nurturing them. You're empathic. You're vulnerable. Because if you want someone to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. Okay, now that, that, that's something we should talk about because that makes a whole ton of sense. But it's also a whole ton of difficult for people oh, yeah. to do. Because again, it plays their ego. So we, we get so far, and you think about at the line of questioning, industry, pains, no, no problem. We want to be number one in our industry. Anybody will give you that stuff. People may even give you the company stuff. We want to be able to increase revenue by 20%. Um, maybe even some of the team stuff. But as it gets closer to the personal, people become far more reluctant to give you that information. But that's where the real reason, that's where the... That's the I guess where the source of, of, of all motive really is coming from, fair? Motive is their reason why. Pain is their reason why. If you can't get their reason why, they're not going to buy from you. Or if they do, it's not going to be because of how you sold. It's going to be in spite of it. Mm. Yeah, so it doesn't mean that you won't sell, but it's going to be very hard for you to be consistent. Yeah, and it's just going to be fluke. Then you're playing the lottery. You're just throwing the dice and you're playing craps. That's interesting because I've often heard people say, I want to work for a great company with a great product. And I think what they're really saying is, I don't know how to sell, so I want the product and the company yeah. to, to pre-sell. Uh, look, IBM's a great company, but I'm putting money on it. The people who, who claim that they are salespeople with IBM, by and large, three blue letters with seven, made up of seven blue lines gets them over uh, into uh, the office often enough. And there will be a number of people who will buy, playing it safe, buying IBM. Um, we see it in our business. You know, Rosso is about the only IBM that I know uh, who's done a really fantastic job of being successful consistently in Samba. Um, I've seen people come in uh, from big corporates, um, the systems integrators, big um, uh, property companies, you name it, chemical companies, and they fail. Not because they're bad human beings, but because they've never really had to sell. Their business card did all the work for them. Um, they, you know, we're in a really tough business. We go into uh, meet a prospect, and they're expecting us to be 10 times better than their best person. Um, and they're looking for us to fail. They'll try to make us trip up. Um, but what's interesting is if you operate from the winner's triangle, then they can never come close to you. They can never you know, land a punch. Um, Rope-a-dope. Hmm? Is it rope-a-dope? Rope-a-dope? What's that mean? Rope-a-dope. It was Muhammad Ali is, is how, how he defeated... I, I, I may get this wrong, but it was one of his famous fights against Frazier where he, he just went into the corner and let Frazier just basically wear himself wear out. Yeah. And then... There's it, a, there's a, yeah, there is a lot of that. Um, but you know, if, if someone's going to vent at you, make sure you let them vent. Once they've run out of things to vent at you, then they've got nowhere else to go. It, experience tells me that when I'm allowing my ego or I'm uh, getting attached to the outcome or I'm more concerned about making the sale than making sure it's a win-win, uh, then what tends to happen is I'll get drawn into a fight that I don't need to have. Um, I'll project that I need the sale and they'll um, you know, pick up on that, and they'll find a way to make me fail. And when I'm selling, I absolutely need to focus on them. I have to be fully present. I have to pay attention uh, to um, what's really being said between the lines, because all too often, um, salespeople tend to take the surface level information. And they will react to the symptom and they'll say, oh, you're not closing enough. Well, let me show you how we close. And what they're doing there is they're, they're, running, they're jumping ahead of themselves. They're putting the cart before the horse. We have to understand their reason why, their motivation for buying. And unless we understand that, 
we can't really offer them a solution. And Mark Goldston said it really well. You know, we, we all want to feel felt, be heard, and be understood. So what we have to do is we have to help them tell their story. We need to give them the paint, the canvas, and the um, brushes, and say, paint me your picture. Tell me your story. Otherwise, it becomes our data. And prospects will argue with my data until I'm blue in the face. They'll never argue with their own. This is very true. Yeah. yeah. But here's and the, so, very often we ask questions with our own agenda and we're not actually present or paying attention. Okay. Well, this again is where the winner's triangle teaches us um, how to make sales. Um, the problem is that most salespeople, um, I think Miller Hyman did a study about 10 years ago of the average length of time a salesperson could keep quiet before they needed to feel, uh, fill the silence with the sound of their own voice. Um, and it turned out that it was 0 0.6 of a second. What? Yeah. Not even three seconds, which is the most common response I get. But 0.6 of a second would be the length of time a salesperson could shut up before they had to fill the void with silence. Now, what that means is that they were probably thinking of their next question while the prospect was answering their last one. Now, where does the really juicy information come in a prospect's answer? Beginning, well, middle, or end? Oh, it's, it's the end, it's between the lines, it's, it's, it's throughout. Okay, so if you're thinking of your next question, while they're giving you the juicy bit of their answer, what happens? Oh, you, you, you missed the juice. Exactly. So um, there is a polite acronym, W-A-I-T, why am I talking? Okay. And then there's a less polite one, S-T-F-U, shut the, Hello. and you get the rest. Okay. Um, so the challenge here is to learn how to bite your tongue, to give the prospect enough space. And the winner's triangle, and uh, Bruce Lee, again, bring him back in. Um, when he was teaching people about Kung Fu, uh, he was saying, be water, not rock. The water gets into all the nooks and crevices. When it's cold, it expands and cracks the rock. And eventually, all the land will end up in the sea. And you need to sell like that. Real salesmanship requires patience. It requires the patience to be quiet and let your prospect speak and for you to be vulnerable enough to listen, which is a much maligned and much underrated skill. Um, it should be taught in schools. Um, and you need to nurture them so that they keep talking. Hmm, that's interesting. Tell me more. How, so I'm curious. Um, that sounds tough, yeah? Because you cannot be the enemy. If you're the enemy, you're never gonna be a trusted advisor. All you're gonna be is another salesperson trying to put your hand in their pocket. Yeah, but you see, and I, I actually think that's one of the challenges often with the whole idea of letting a conversation just, just flow, particularly in a sales context where there's a little bit of pressure. I mean, the only pressure you and I have right now is that this has been recorded, but I could cut, cut this stuff out is that you're talking and then you'll say something that sparks a question in my head. But if I don't hold on to that, I'll forget it. I will literally forget it. That's why you have to write stuff down. Yeah, I think so. Cause I've been guilty of it. You know, I have, and I have two thoughts come in at once. And then both of them get wiped. That's incredibly frustrating. Yes, um, I, I actually yeah. think that's. I think that maybe that's the challenge. Certainly, as I experience it, it's not the. It's not the case of listening and being so totally present that nothing pops into your head. Because if you are present, stuff is going to pop into your head because somebody will say something that will will spark a thought, and the thought just leaps right in front of your brain. And I think the real skill is being able to be comfortable putting that to one side. And I think you're right. You have to write it down. Uh, otherwise, it, it, just trying to hold it in your head will drive you crazy and you won't be listening. But, but well, and that, that's, yeah, to, to, to take that point further, if you're thinking about your next genius attack, you're not listening. And you have to pay attention. 
Um, a, a mistake people make is they forget that attention is a currency, you pay attention. If you keep investing in the emotional bank account with your prospect, because they feel felt, heard and understood, and you understand them to their total satisfaction, then you're gonna find that there's very little resistance when it comes to the end. Um, I think it was Antonio Garrido said it really well, that your job at the beginning is to make it easy for your prospect to say no. And to then ask them enough insightful questions so that by the end, it's really difficult to say no. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And we, we, we as salespeople have to be, uh, take responsibility and own um, where we are psychologically. Um, you know, you will only perform to the level your self-concept will allow. So one of the reasons why salespeople give up so much of their power and move into the, uh, the drama triangle is they put the prospect on a pedestal. So they move themselves straight into victim. Um, and they're there because they want to help, uh, but they'll help without boundaries or permissions. So they move into the rescuer. Uh, and then they're up against the prospect who's bullying, brutal, brutalizing them, uh, demanding stuff. And they don't know how not to because their little child inside is very compliant. And you need to have a strong self-concept, understanding that the prospect is never more or less than your equal, even on your worst day. Um, and that means you have rights. The Winner's Triangle teaches you you have the right to ask tough, insightful questions and get the answers to the question that you asked. The Winner's Triangle teaches you that you can be very strong without being aggressive by being vulnerable and assertive. I love you, son. On this occasion, I am deeply disappointed in your behavior and I expect it never to happen again. Am I absolutely crystal clear? Yeah? You can, take those, you can take a strong position. doesn't mean that you're a pushover. Uh, but what it does mean is that you can plant your feet. You can be nurturing. You can really pay attention and focus your energy on trying to understand them. Um, because if you don't understand them to their total satisfaction, they won't buy. If they don't feel that you understand them and appreciate them, they'll leave you. And they'll go to a competitor. Yeah, that's what happens. People don't leave companies, they leave bosses. Absolutely. 82% of people in the survey that I read a few years back uh, left their boss, not their company. And oddly enough, I think it was KPMG did a survey of why um, uh, customers leave their suppliers and 82% left because they didn't feel loved anymore. We're, we're creatures of emotion. We're social animals. Mm. We're wired in exactly the same way, whether you're... Um, you know, the, the whitest wasp from East Coast America uh, to uh, someone from a Stone Age tribe in Papua New Guinea. Our brain stems are the same. Our, you know, the brain structure is identical. So what do we do with all of this? If you were to say to people who are listening right now, they've heard a lot of really, really good, sensible, fundamentally important, sound concepts how can they make sense, not make sense of it? How can they move forward with, with, with some new, it's not learnings because learnings don't mean much. Um, how can they apply? Yeah. Okay. Good question. Um, glad I asked. <laughs> um, okay. First thing, understand what is, what the differences are between Vulnerable, nurturing, and assertive, and victim, persecutor, rescuer. Okay, understand what those different voices sound like. And uh, use vulnerable, nurturing, assertive as a reversing tool. So if a prospect says something to you like, um, that's expensive, you can use vulnerable, nurturing, assertive as a reverse. I appreciate it is expensive. And I'm getting the sense that what you're telling me is you don't want to do business with me. Is it over? Yeah? So you can use it like that as a framework for being able to reverse um, a prospect's objections or any form of attack, uh, any form of complaint. Um, your service is terrible. You know, I am so sorry that we've let you down. I absolutely understand how frustrated you must be. 
what would you like me to do about it? Yeah? Yeah. And this stuff can be used in life as well as in uh, sales. You know, sales is just a microcosm of life. Um, you can use it for recognizing when you're being a bad parent versus a good parent. Yeah? The victim says, you don't appreciate me. Yeah? The rescuer says, I do my best. I'm only trying to help. And the persecuting parent says, you always, you never, you always leave your clothes on the floor. You're such a disappointment. You don't work hard enough. Yeah? Mm. Now, you could do the same. You could go vulnerable, nurturing, assertive. And you can say, Paul, I'm so sorry. I've let you down. I haven't paid enough attention. I absolutely understand how difficult it must be being a team, um, working on, you know, no one seems to understand you and you've got all these pressures of your GCSEs coming up. Um, look, what can I do to make this better? Can I sit with you and maybe we can work together on this? What about people though who use that victimhood as a weapon? We'll never let them. The professional victims, every response to a situation is to cause the drama. If you stay in the winner's triangle, you never get drawn into the drama. Okay? So give me a classic victim response that, or um, outburst that you might hear. Okay. So I say to my son, who was studying for some state exams, uh, he came downstairs one Saturday afternoon and I said to him, have you finished your study? And he goes, all oh, right, then I won't go out. Fall straight okay. into victimhood. Okay. Um, can I just ask you, Paul, the tone with which you said, have you finished your studying, didn't sound in any way critical parent, did it? Uh, perhaps a tad. Not, yeah, I mean, certainly that's how it was interpreted. Ah, right. Okay. But it wasn't intended like that, knowing full well that you were judging him. <laughs> can I say fuck off on air? <laughs> you absolutely can. Um, my point being here, yeah, that maybe you yeah. created it. Okay. If on the other hand, you say, studying must have been tough. Yeah. What mm. did you learn? Okay. Or, ah, oh, good to see you, son. Are you planning to go out? Yep. Yeah. Point mid. But if you start with that tonality, and remember, the clothes that wrap your words say a lot more than the words themselves. Yeah. Yeah? You could think of the number of different ways uh, you can say whatever. Yeah? Yeah. What do you like? Whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> whatever. Yeah? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Is because we tend to blank out what goes before and that what, what some people do is... Although I've seen it like with politicians like Berlusconi, uh, Trump, they, they will automatically fall into victim. And I, and I think they do it on purpose to, to set up an, an, an us and them yeah. dynamic. And, and that's really where I was going with it, but I did want to mention Trump's name. But Yeah, but he, do, he does. He's constantly doing it. He's a master manipulator. And you, know, you see this stuff happen all the time, all over the shop, um, because people um, get roped in, because he plays uh, you know, the, the American victim, and then he goes straight into persecuting. You know, a month ago, he was suggesting that the Afghans pay for the war uh, by um, you know, pillaging all of their mineral content. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you, you, he, he played the drama triangle in the same way that Brexit happened. Yeah, Brexit was all about the drama triangle. That's why I was confident the Leave was going to win. Because they played anger and what's a disenfranchisement and um, you know, them versus us. And yeah, the, the evil um, you know, uh, European uh, plutocrats and yeah, you know, foreigners and yeah. immigrants. Yeah? Yeah, they wrap again, themselves in the victim cloak. Exactly. End of the day, they play the victim card, yeah, and then go straight into persecutor because then they have to blame someone. Yeah. It's a joyous mess. So, um, you know, 
using, let's go to something you can use. Um, wherever you look, you see the drama triangle happening. Um, and the, just go to television, soap operas, um, the news, dramas, reality TV. It's all about other people's misery so that we can find someone else more not okay than us so we can feel okay about where we are. Um, and you know, for years, I've avoided watching the news. I mean, if there's something really important, I'll catch up on it because people will be talking about it. Um, but by and large, my life is much happier not watching other people be unhappy. And wherever you look, you see this drama. You know, Sandler once referred to, have you ever seen a family going out to have a bad time? Um, and you know, they're all packed in the car, they're fighting, they're arguing. Uh, the parents are at their wit's end, the kids are squabbling and punching each other. Um, they get out and you know, it's just hell. Um, but that's pretty much where most people are. Organizations occur, um, you know, end up like that uh, because the leader uh, is ambiguous about what's expected and ambiguity at the top creates politics at the bottom. Uh, you get uh, structural tension in an organization. Now, yeah, thank goodness for structural tension and pain because uh, otherwise we wouldn't be in, a, in work. Um, but you know, the reality is most of the problems that our clients suffer from are self-inflicted. I mean, they, without putting too fine a point on it, and I'm probably not going to make many brownie points, uh, but aren't they the Egypt uh, that got themselves dug into this hole? Yep, they sure are. Yeah. So they can carry on doing what they're doing and they can blame and make excuses. My salespeople don't. It's the marketplace, our competition, all those evil Chinese coming in and doing it so cheap, yeah? But they're the architect of their problems. If they'd had a little bit of foresight and they trained their people right and they put the right systems in place and they focused on the right end of the problem, um, they wouldn't have to be digging around at the bottom of the pond uh, to get the, you know, the grubs out. Um, they could be focusing at the top end, selling premium uh, to a handful of clients who pay them handsomely and love paying them a lot of money um, because it saves them an awful lot of pain and effort. But instead, they scrabble around in a race to the bottom because they haven't fixed the right end of the problem. It's true. It's true. You're a man of great wisdom, Marcus. Can you tell my wife? <laughs> she wouldn't believe me anyway. I know. <laughs> Listen, Marcus, just formerly we're, we're, we're up on time. Uh, it's been jam-packed with wisdom and insight. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Marcus Kauke. Marcus, where, where can people get in contact with you if they want to get in contact? What's the best? If you want to get in contact, my telephone number is uh, plus 44118-940-4150. My mobile is plus 44-7515. 937221, or you can get me at the underscore inquisitor, capital T for the, and capital I for inquisitor on Twitter, or check me out on LinkedIn and YouTube um, and get in touch. Follow me on uh, uh, LinkedIn, follow me on YouTube, and um, yeah, send me some problems as well. If you've got anything really juicy that you want to have a film about, or you want me to write a blog because I lack imagination. And it would be really helpful if you could help me out. Super stuff. Marcus, thanks again.